Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Oh, hi, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It's me, the host, Cindy Howes. Happy to have you here today. Libby Rodenbow is on the pod today, and it's going to be very fun. Before we get into it, let's talk a little bit about business. Sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. That is the best way for us to stay in touch. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. And if you've been listening for a while and want to help us with our operations, you can make a financial contribution. Get $5 a month, $10 a month at our website, basicfolk.com. There's also a link in the show notes. Okay, Libby Rodenbow's second solo record sees the fiddler and songwriter further stretching from the bluegrass old-time style of her band Mipso. Born in Greensboro, South Carolina, music was just another activity that Libby did along with soccer and going to Girl Scouts. She played violin in her school's orchestra and thought she'd major in music until a college professor let her know that her playing 
was not up to par with those who studied classical music at a collegial level. She found herself at a local bluegrass jam session and meeting her future Mipso band members, which led her to discover that music could be a creative outlet and a means of expression. On the new record, Libby is processing and coping with the death of her mother, who was diagnosed with an incurable cancer and died about five months before she began recording the album. Created amongst North Carolina musicians, she found herself nestled in a group of people who were also dealing with loss of and serious illness of loved ones. This gave the sessions a heavy and contemplative feel, but also it was comforting to be around friends who felt the existence and love of those who were no longer alive in the room. Libby is open, honest, and real. We get into lady things and cat things. Hope you enjoy Libby. Her new album is wonderful. We'll take a listen to a song from the new release. This is Easier to Run, and then we will talk to Libby Rodenbow on Basic Folk. so much for being on Basic Folk. It's really nice to meet you. Likewise. I feel like I know you because mm. you've, I, you've interviewed a number of my friends and I've listened to the interviews. And in that way that often happens with podcasts, I'm like, I feel like I've already met you because I've heard the Ooh. way, you know, you ask questions and stuff and I know the sound of your voice. But now it's real. Am I everything you thought I would be? Uh, that and more. Well, we'll oh, I'll, I'll let you know at the end of the interview. We'll see. Okay, yeah. right. It's too soon to tell. Well, I know a lot about you uh, from <laughs> the deep dive that I've taken. Um, and before we jump into it, just want to give a shout out to a couple of places that had great interviews with you. Uh, she and her podcast, which you were on like 100 years ago, Redline Roots, and also Chapel Hill Magazine. How much do you want to talk about the pronunciation of your last name? Well, I can I can uh, put all the rumors to rest right now and tell everyone that it's pronounced Rodenbow. Rodenbow. Yeah. Well, okay, let's jump into it. You are from Greensboro, North Carolina. Get ready for some intense, long questions. You have a background in classical violin, which you started playing around six years old because your older sister did it. Then you started playing piano at eight years old, and you grew up singing in the church choir. Your mom played musicals around the house, and your dad is famously tone deaf. Music was kind of like a routine part of your life, like going to soccer practice or Girl Scouts, so it was not yet a form of personal expression. When you were a kid, what were you passionate about and how do you see that passion playing out for you as an adult? 
Um, the first thing that came to mind was bugs. I was extremely mm. passionate. I had a little uh, like safari vest with a, um, ma- a magnifying glass holder. And I would go out and study bugs and capture them and put them in little terrariums that I thought they would like more than nature somehow. Um, and I guess probably like the natural world in general, I was pretty obsessed with. Um, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I, dovetails with that and that actually provides a little bridge between bugs and music is that I really loved my summer camp growing up. I went to this camp in the North Carolina mountains called um, Green River Preserve. And okay. it was a super hippie camp. Um, it was like we, we, would, we would do morning prayers where we would replace um, God with the earth and stuff like that. Wow. And it was there that I first heard, I think I could say, at least uh, knowingly, where I first heard folk music. And one of the first mm-hmm. songs that I learned was Paradise by John Prine, which was one of our campfire songs there. That's cool. They're like working on c- cultivating these little environmentalists. I love that. So the music that you were into as a kid centered around musicals and it's funny to hear you just talk about that summer camp that replaced god with the earth but church music was also a big thing for you so musicals later but first church music um what kind of church music are we talking about and what are your thoughts and feelings about those songs now well i am i'm no longer a I, I, in my adult life i've never been like a practicing religious person Christian person, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I'm not, I'm also not a person who carries a lot of like resentment for the experience of growing up in church because on the whole, I think it was really beautiful and positive for me. And it was, uh, it was beautiful in like a a broad sense in this, in the, in the sense that I had a a community of people, a multi-generational community of like a, a true community and in the traditional sense in the way that like barely exists anymore outside of religious spaces people who cared about me and and knew me from birth onward and were invested in my development as a human being that were outside mm-hmm. my family what kind of church was it presbyterian and, right. and it was the it was the more like liberal wing of the presbyterian church fun yeah and I mean, there were there were plenty of moments that uh, that like question had me questioning my personal ethics too. Like I remember this youth pastor telling me that my Jewish friends were going to hell, and Ooh. you know there were moments like that where I just kind of like checked out, and that's part of the reason that I'm I no longer um, you know attend a Christian church. But I loved a lot of the stories of the Bible, and I loved having this like central group of stories that this this that we all these people could refer to and kind of have like a you know a founding mythology for our ethical framework and um and I enjoyed the music a lot um I'm just talking about like presbyterian hymnal stuff but a lot of those songs I mean some of those I would say are akin to folk music like old time music or something and that they have these really old melodies that there's been many, many different words put to, and they've been sung by human beings for hundreds of years, and they're really strong 
strongly written <laughs> songs, a lot of them, mm-hmm. a lot of those stick in my mind that I'm sure that, you know, not in a conscious way, but I'm sure they inform the way I write songs because they were some of mm. the earliest melodies that I knew and they were in my head over and over and over again. Okay, so musicals, for a moment as a kid, you wanted to be a Broadway actor and you, I feel like you liked being on stage and that desire to be on stage, it seems like went away for a little bit until you started playing with Mipso. Hopefully I'm getting this correct. What do you remember liking about being on stage in like a theater setting And then how did it feel to get back on stage with Mipso? Like, how did you like ease, you know, was it immediately comfortable or did it take a while to ease back into it? Well, I wasn't on stage much in a theater setting because I was like really bad at it. So I mostly just like Mm. failed to get into plays a lot. And that was really hard on my little sensitive, uh, you know, eight to 11 year old ego you were not in one play? I was in one, I actually was in one out of nine that I tried out for at the, the Greensboro wow. the Greensboro Children's Theater. I was in the chorus for It Happened in Hamlin, which was the, the Pied Piper story. And I was only in there because I, I was pretty good at singing. But like, I mm-hmm. guess my acting just wasn't up to snuff. I, I suspect it had something to do with like, I was an awkward kid. Like I was physically awkward. And I think that theater kids tend to like be little Gerber baby type, you know, like young Abercrombie and Fitch model type of people who carry themselves a certain Mm -hmm. way in the world. And I wasn't like that. Um, That's my theory, at least. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but I had this I had a real I had real negative associations with with performance Um, I hated auditions. I hated those theater auditions, especially since I usually failed. I hated doing um, recitals in my like violin and piano lessons. I just felt like it was a space of so much judgment. And probably a lot of it was imagined because I'm sure all the parents of the kids at the violin recital wanted me to succeed. But sure. um, it didn't feel supportive to me and it certainly didn't feel communal or alive in the way that now I feel like musical performance is for me. And you asked about like my early experiences playing with Mipso and it really was immediate. Like I remember the first time that I got on stage with them and the, the crowd who didn't know who I was, you know, just went wild clapping and I just felt so held up and um, immediately felt really free, even though at that time, when I first started playing with Mipso, I hadn't really done that style of violin playing, like I hadn't ever improvised. And it was all really scary, but it was the the difference between that and doing like classical auditions and recitals was huge. Mm. Yeah, it really sounds like the missing link is the community missing you know and you got that from your church growing up and that it's all coming together this puzzle is all (laughs) making sense this is a funny story originally you were going to be a music major 
but a professor pointed out that you were not at the level of performance that most music majors are. Fun fact, you didn't ever practice, which I can totally relate to. Uh, I did also not. I played clarinet, and I never liked to practice. My dad still laughs about it to this day. I'm interested in knowing for you what has been the evolution of your relationship to practicing. Um, well, I think that I just practice when I was doing music, when I was in the classical world, it was such a um, dry passionless pursuit for me and I love classical music I really love playing in orchestras and I miss that a lot but I was just what do you like about what do you like about that because it's because you're Mm. giving us a lot of clues as to why you don't like it (laughs) well in orchestras aside from the the fact that you had to audition and um sometimes you would challenge each other for uh you know your chair placement aside from that stuff it was a place where you could basically be anonymous and just be part of this sea of sound. And mm. I've I've played in some large ensembles since then, but never the size of a, like a symphony orchestra. And it's really, I mean, it's it's not comparable to playing with a band on stage with monitors or whatever. You know, like to be in an acoustic uh, scenario on stage with like a hundred other musicians and have that richness of sound and and like you know the complexity of compositions that are in even high school classical repertoire it's um it's like totally sublime like i it it makes me feel emotional to think about it Mm. like there were times when i would almost you know i would have like tears welling up inside of me when we were playing like the pirates of the caribbean theme song because even like the (laughs) tritest music Ah! in that setting like it feels profound Wait, how about this one? The Jurassic Park theme song. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'll yeah, start I'll right? start tearing up right now just thinking about it. It's a good one. In your opinion, as the violin player in the orchestra, what is the best chair to be? Oh gosh. Well, I think it's I think I ultimately decided, although I was always trying to be in the first violins because I was an overachiever, I think that the second violin parts are often more interesting. And not as high. Like the first violins in so much classical music, they're just like playing way up the, like in the fifth or sixth position. (laughs) Like they're just like so high playing these melodies all the time. And the second violins get get the cooler parts. Actually, if I could Mm. do it again though, I would definitely be a cellist. Because I think that range is the prettiest. And I love that you like hold it against your body and like move with it. It's so visceral. Oh, that's cool. That's a cool observation. I do have a question about you being an overachiever. But first, I read this sentence about you. Libby graduated from UNC, that's the University of North Carolina, in May 2014, where she was a Moorhead Kane scholar and studied folklore and American studies, which sounds like you are an impressive student, a scholar. Hello. So you didn't practice, but can you delve into like what kind of student what kind of learner you are? Well, I'm a person who always succeeded pretty naturally in like formal academic settings. And I got a lot of positive feedback for that. And it was not until I was in college that I started to even sort of consider the question of what I actually cared about, what like what I was passionate about learning. 
I was a really great in terms of like a high achieving student all through my like grade school years. And in college I was a I was a good student too, but I was also undergoing this period of self-questioning and definitely world questioning and um I had just been I had spent my whole life very deferential to authority and I started to feel like I was seeing through a lot of that and I could I could start to understand that there was lots of things my professors were saying that was bullshit and <laughs> I, I you know it's some of it started to feel really thin to me and I started to see like the game of academia how it was sort of as as arbitrary and not necessarily positive for the world as like anything else that it was just sort of like a you know a hierarchy with certain rules and expectations and that the generation of knowledge wasn't always the actual goal I sort of fell out of love with being a good student and I not not to say that I I mean I still got good grades in college but I when I entered college I think I I had imagined myself maybe going to grad school like you know, maybe doing a, a kind of like academic path for my life. And I got really disillusioned with that in, hmm. in undergrad. But what if it was about bugs? That I mean, absolutely. That's what I should have done. I do feel like yeah. I wish I had done more science. I think I, you, you know how like we segment ourselves pretty early on, like are you a science yes. and math type kid or are you a, you know, literature and arts type of kid? And I, I always felt like I was more of the latter but I also loved math and I love science and um I mean it's not too late but I wish that I had I had spent more time in those fields so we've talked a little bit about you being an overachiever we've heard a little bit about like what that means to you but how have you experienced like being a high achiever in positive and negative ways like just thinking about that term you know, I don't even know what it means to be, I don't know if I was exactly an overachiever. It's not like I achieved too much. <laughs> I certainly have not achieved too much in my life. For a long time, I was interested in achievement for the sake of achievement. Like I was just driven to get pats on the back in every arena. And that followed me into um, into music. Like when Mipso was starting out, we were more of a bluegrassy type of band and we would be at bluegrass festivals and with other bluegrass bands where the fiddle players were just you know a million notes a minute super technical really really um virtuosic violin players and I wasn't that and it really wasn't what I wanted to be but because I was in the midst of a lot of people who were good in that particular way I felt like I had to be good in that particular way mm. and that's probably the time of my life where I practiced the most um, honestly was like the early years of Mipso and I was trying to understand I, I was just trying to get some like technical skill in, in bluegrass and there is a lot of bluegrass that I like but ultimately that's not the path that I found for myself as an instrumentalist that feels really like true to my soul. Um, mm. I'm I'm grateful for the time that I spent learning some of that stuff. And I had some amazing teachers like Bobby Britt was one of my teachers. He, he plays in the, the band Town Mountain. Um, he's from Chapel Hill as well. He's he's like 
one of the most soulful musicians I've ever heard. And then I, I also took a lot of lessons from old time fiddlers around here. Um, and I'm really grateful for all of that. But uh, what I'm proudest of personally is in the last 10 years or so, finding a way to um, be happy with the kind of like specificity of my playing. I don't know, just trying to, I think I, I'm, tr- you know, personal best, that idea of like mm-hmm. measuring, you asked about overachievement and I'm trying to measure my achievement these days based on like uh, my own metric of what's good, which is difficult, but that's what I strive for. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to talk about when you were in college, that's when you started um, checking out fiddle playing and you've talked about first jamming with your friend and fellow MIPSO member, Joseph, Tur- was it Joseph Terrell? Um, Terrell. Mm-hmm. Who also has a solo record mm-hmm. uh, out, as well as attending uh, this bar Nightlight in Chapel Hill. They had an all-time jam. So this all started like around the age of 19. And also around that time, you left school for a year and went to Chicago and attended classes at the Old Town School of Folk Music, and you learned guitar, mandolin, banjo, and basically, like, how to play with other people in this, like, informal, non-classical style. Can you put into words what it was like for you to transform from a classical musician who read sheet music, wanted to play second chair, into a lady who plays fiddle around the campfire? Well... I rediscovered a lot of that like sense of community that I'd been talking about in terms of my upbringing in the church. It's funny. I mean, even though I, 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 w- I was talking about playing in an orchestra and how that was an amazing experience to be surrounded by people, it is not communal in the sense that, you know, still everybody's parts are written down. There's a conductor. So there's, you know, there's a lot of hierarchy in it. And in old time jams and in just more, you know, less formal folk jams that I went to um, at the Old Town School, I experienced music as like a true community activity, sometimes accompanying dancing and sometimes just sort of like a way of hanging out and catching up with each other and, Mm. you know, feeling a sense of fellowship. I really loved that the the point was not to um be special in fact it almost the point was not was to be not special the point was to be you know part of the whole i think that's an ethos that is really sustaining for me as and I, and obviously like i put out music under my own name and i write songs and i i there's something about like the you know my personal artistry that i believe in and that i'm pursuing but i think everybody in the world should feel like part of a musical community. I think there should be no barrier to entry. Mm, I love that. Um, Okay, so after all these musical epiphanies, I feel like this is a really important part of your story. You started recording and playing with Mipso, and the important part is that you started realizing that you could use music for personal expression, and although you had been playing music for like 13, 15 years, you were like finally considering yourself a musician. However, like you were hesitant still to say you were a musician because you had like discovered the concept so late at the old age of 19 um, and you felt pretty young in music. Like, do you still feel that way? And 
if so, like, how do you feel young in music still? Well, I do feel still like the, I, f- I feel like I'm, I'll be an eternal beginner in a certain sense, in a, in a sense that I'm inten- intentionally cultivating. Like, mm-hmm. I, I always want to feel like music is something vast and sort of mystical and unknowable and in, 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 a, in a in a good way, in a way that's like intriguing and um you know i don't i don't want to feel bored with music or feel like i've mastered it that's not a feeling i'm chasing but in other ways i do not feel young at all anymore because the industry is so youth focused i'm 32 Mm -hmm. and i'm i mean in a lot of like festival settings and musical settings in general i'm the oldest person in the room now which for so long Mipso among our peers, especially in like bluegrass and Americana, that skews a little older. And um, we would we would always be getting like ribbed by our and even feeling kind of low key resentment from our <laughs> older <laughs> um, compatriots in that field. And now we've kind of all graduated from that. And actually, I recently started playing in this band, the band of an artist named Indigo D'Souza. And I'm the oldest person in the band. Indigo is is like 25, and some of the band members are as young as 23. And um, it's been an interesting experience for me. It's like I sort of didn't notice that I was aging until I (laughs) found myself (laughs) in in this group of much younger people. And it doesn't. I need a hair dryer. (laughs) Yeah. It it, do, it doesn't feel bad. Like I'm not. I don't feel like self conscious about it. Uh, but I feel a little like bemused. Yeah. I'm like oh my gosh. I remember. I remember thinking like when I first got into radio. Like when I first got my first real job in radio, I was 25, and I feel like I like rode the wave of youth for like 10 years, and yeah. then. You get to a point where you're like, okay, what's special about me now? Because I'm not young, you know, or right. just like even realizing the fact that like that, that wears off and then you just like settle into it. It's great. Dude, I had that, I had that particular sickness where I really wanted, like when I was a kid where I really wanted to be a child prodigy and that kind of stayed with me <laughs> where like I, I, I really wanted to put out my first solo album like as young as possible and then I just kind of like whiffed that or I just got too busy and I was doing Mipso stuff and I didn't put out my first solo album until I was 29 and then I was like it, like still in the back of my mind sometimes I'm like what could I do that I'd still be young at like write a novel still on the young side for that but like it, yeah. it there, there are decreasing <laughs> possibilities and then I'm like why why would I want that because I look at people who I'm, I mean I'm grateful that I was not a child prodigy because I look at people who had, you know, like outside success when they were children and it's clearly very hard to like construct your, um, I don't know, like your psyche going forward from that. So I'm obviously blessed that that didn't happen. But I remember like getting mad when I was like 10 or 11 years old, like getting mad at my mom for not forcing me to practice more so that I could have been a prodigy. (laughs) I just don't think it was in the cards for me, though. I didn't have that kind of focus. Well, this is a natural transition to talk about the male gaze. Dealing with the male gaze as a stage performer, 
What has been the evolution of your awareness of the male gaze? And how do you negotiate like the desire to protect yourself from it versus like express yourself through your style on stage or through your like public persona? It, that's been something that I um, I think about a lot in my particular context for most of the last 10 years playing in Mipso, which is a band with three dudes in it. All the time from basically from the beginning, I was torn between leaning into that difference or, or de-emphasizing it. And I mean, it was... At a certain point, I, I, I recognized that it was not something I could really, um, like, make disappear. Like, it was just obviously true that I was the one that's not like the others. Um, mm. and, and still, it's not something that I consider, like, a closed case for myself. Like, sometimes I feel like wearing a dress or a little skirt on stage, and other times... I don't want to be perceived as particularly feminine or I want to, you know, have a different, I, 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 um, you know, find a different lane for my femininity. And it, and it's hard to know how much of that is just part of like the journey of (laughs) figuring out your gender expression and how much is particular to being on stage. I don't know. I'm, I guess that being on stage just amplifies the, the, like the stakes of those questions that everybody asks about how they want to be seen and how they want to present Mm -hmm. themselves. I've gotten to a place, a pretty good place where if I am like utilizing my style or my sexuality or something as part of my performance, then I consider that, you know, all all gravy like you know it's all fair game for me to to use as a as a performer but um there are times definitely when I wish that I could I could be perceived as just a person you know there's times when I feel like people's compliments or even just like their perception of me is contingent on me being female and that seems to like you mean like um Physical, like compliments about your phys- physical self or your musical about ability? my musical ability. Yeah, like, like somet- you're pretty good for a girl. Yeah, there's that undertone to things sometimes, and sometimes I don't know if I'm just imagining that or what, you know. But I, I, I sometimes feel like Libby, yeah. you're a scholar. <laughs> you're probably not imagining it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess it is also. I know it to be pervasive because I talk to other women and especially like women performers. I've had really in all the musical projects I've been involved in, I've had like really thoughtful, generous fans on average. So I don't, I don't feel like it's been particularly egregious in my case. But there is this little like there's like a little veneer of self-doubt that I feel like my male bandmates don't experience. I mean, they have plenty, mm-hmm. they have plenty of self-doubt that's connected to other things. Maybe, yeah. maybe connected to their, to their masculinity, you know, but I, I definitely think that I question, I, I, I spend a little extra minute questioning like what I'm wearing and how I'm moving and things like that, that I wish mm-hmm. I wouldn't. Another aspect you've talked about in being 
a woman in a male-dominated industry um, is that sometimes you feel the burden of speaking for all ladies when answering questions much like this one. When did you start feeling that that was a thing that was happening? And this is a little bit of a nuanced angle of this question. Like, where have you noticed that coming up, like, for you in your observations of the world? Like, this particular farmer is speaking for all farmers, or like, this particular minority is speaking for all minorities. Like, how do you notice and try to get away from that notion? Okay, so the first, like, the first part of your question about, I guess, like, when when that started, or in what context that I started feeling that way, I think Mipso and, and a lot of Americana artists have, you know, there's a lot of kids in that fan demographic it's like family friendly music so there's kids at our shows a lot and I've also taught lessons to kids and I can't not think about them you know the 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 girls and the boys alike but um especially the girls when I'm when I'm like considering the the perception of me on stage I know that um even though I'm not hugely famous I'm part of like the the whole quilt of experiences of Mm -hmm. women in public that that kids will see in their early life you're you're like a a role model in sort of like the baby trads yeah come the baby trad world yeah and I don't know I mean I did not um because I didn't grow up um, imagining myself becoming a musician I didn't have a ton of musical role models but a lot of them were men and still are and yeah there's just there there are fewer women that that do anything publicly than men you know so yeah, <laughs> therefore yeah, yeah. therefore just logically the burden is 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 more on each individual and the second part of your question I mean that's tough that that um that reminds me of my parents' church is like the church I grew up in is mostly white, occasionally has had some non-white members over the years. There's a member of the church, a family in the church now who's black. And my mom started this um, peace and justice committee at the church. And this other black member of the church is on the committee. And she (laughs) was telling me about how like, it, it it won't it'll be like it'll be a sort of like careless slippage where they'll accidentally end up framing an issue like well um what do black people think and then all turn to him <laughs> you know oh. like yeah. as if he like speaks for the 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 entire uh you know world population of black people i think that happens a lot lot a lot to people of color in all white you know, otherwise all white settings I don't feel it happening to me a ton, except, you know, if I'm being with interviewed with Mipso and there's a question about gender, then obviously I'm 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 kind of like on my own little island. But mm-hmm. these days, I, I would say it's not something that like bothers me a whole lot. I just try to answer honestly as myself and not imply that I have, you know, that I speak for anybody else. Mm. Your new album, Between the Blades, if uh, listeners are experiencing this podcast, the day it comes out, this record is out tomorrow, otherwise known as Friday, May 12th. 
This is your sophomore solo album. I've pulled a lot of quotes from your from your press here, so bear with me. Um, you enlisted a wide family of staple North Carolina musicians to reinforce and evaluate your inherent spirit of exploration, which is beautiful. So this is a comment I found from you about your debut solo record. Um, it's a little long. So um, the solo album also gave me a chance to play music with some other people, which is such a deep and spiritual exchange. I've experienced that with my band, and the four of us also have an ability to communicate musically on a deep level. Um, Libby, can you talk about what it's been like for you to create that type of deep communication with people outside of Mipso? And and does that that change your communication style within Mipso? Yeah, um, well... I've really experienced that lately playing an Indigo's band because it's a totally new setting for me. Like the people who I made my both of my solo albums with, it's mainly the same cast of characters and it's friends and like musical collaborators that I've had for a long time here in the Triangle, like Saman Kujinian and Alex Bingham, who both co-produced this recent album with me and they also play on the album and um, Joe Westerlin, who plays drums, and Jay Hammond, who plays guitar, and Kate Rudy, who sings harmonies. These are people that I've I've been developing my kind of you know musical vocabulary with them for a long time. But I I just started in in this band with Indigo um, a couple months ago, and I had never met any of them. I had met the drummer Avery Sullivan, but I had never met any of the rest of them. It's been such a beautiful experience to get to know them at the same to get to know them musically at the same time that I'm getting to know them as people and it's very especially when you're when you're doing that in the um in the very high pressure environment of tour it's really an intense experience and it's 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 different from forming a friendship in any other context I think because it's it's so personal and it's almost like, I mean, playing on stage with people live is almost like tripping or something where like <laughs> your mind is in a kind of suspended <laughs> state and you're open in ways that you're not normally open and you're making bizarre faces and you're not like time is passing in a, in a different way. It is trippy. It is uh, psychedelic and there's, a lot that happens that's unspoken and usually unspoken about because there's not a lot of like English vocabulary for what that experience feels like, I think. Um, mm. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, words are failing me, but it's very, it's very emotional and intense and bodily and it's really cool. And I, I hope that I keep, experiencing that with new people for the rest of my life that's one of the I think that's just like such a gift that being able to play an instrument um provides you and Mm. that it makes me grateful that I just sort of tumbled accidentally into this line of work Hmm. this is a question about your mom is that cool all right yeah you said I wrote most of these songs in the period where my mom was very sick and immediately after she passed away I wouldn't say they're grief songs. Mostly they're about trying to keep the faith, believing life can be new and even better. You have a really great Instagram. 
Um, and recently you posted a video of yourself on your Instagram. It's baby Libby reading a book and your mom is filming you and encouraging you. And it's like a really lovely moment. And it gives a, a person kind of a glimpse of what kind of person your mom was. So how did writing these songs and making this record strengthen your connection to your mother? And like, how did she encompass the mission of this album? Well, um, my mom had a really traumatic childhood where her mom died when she was really young and her dad mm. really struggled with alcoholism and she ended up growing up in a children's home and just didn't have a lot of support and love in her life. And I feel like the typical version of that story is like somebody, a person who comes from that background grows up with a lot of baggage or, you know, perpetuates some of the same cycle of, you know, not ha not having enough love to give. But my mom totally defied that. And it's a mystery that I, I don't feel like I understand at all. Mm. Maybe I never will. But the more that I, like, as I became an adult and I became, I, I could understand better how strange that was, like what an exception she was. I, I just felt like I had no excuse to be cynical about people and about the world because she was like this living testament to how, the, you know, hate doesn't ha or hate or lack of love doesn't have to beget more of that. Um, mm -hmm. My mom had like infinite, infinite love to give. I don't know. I don't know where it all came from. And it just make it, it feels to me like proof that love is this renewable resource um, that it can spring up in anyone and, and from, from anywhere. And, um, I maybe partially because I had like a really, uh, beautiful kind of boring, carefree childhood. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is typical of people like me. I became really like cynical about the world in response. Um, some, some, some strange, and I don't know why that happens, but I, I feel like it's a common story. But my mom makes it impossible for me to keep feeling um, apathetic and cynical. And I think that I wouldn't be making music if I didn't have some sense that it, that thing, that, you know, anything matters, that things matter and that, um, mm -hmm. that making art matters. And my mom also loved music she loved hymns and she loved singing in the church choir herself i don't question my love for singing with other people i think in part because she modeled it for me it's like there's no need to wonder why this is just a beautiful experience mm. and when i was um when i was making this record it was the it was maybe about five or six months after my mom had passed away and the group of people that I mentioned, we were all at this lake house together in Virginia. And our drummer, his partner's, um, his partner's dad was dying at that time. And my bass player and co-producer, Alex, one of his best friends from childhood had just been diagnosed with um, brain cancer that mm. was not, um, was not curable. So there was like this kind of 
there was a little like heaviness in the air. There was like a specter of death. And because multiple people were experiencing it at once, I think that sort of like opened up the the conversation to people just, you know, expressing some really heavy thoughts about it. And there are moments where we were all crying and there were also moments where we weren't crying, but we were just getting like really contemplative about what it means to be, to exist and then to not exist and for people to not exist. And is that, does that even happen? And I, I told them, and I'll tell you too, that I was in the hospital room just moments after my mom died and I had just been holding her hand like 30 minutes before And I could see when I looked at her body that she was no longer in her body, you know, after they had already, they had already declared her um, dead. But I also knew immediately that she still existed. Like I just, I, it, it just felt totally unfathomable to me that she just ceased to exist in that moment, Mm -hmm. you know? And when I was at this session with my friends, I think we all had this sense of like, the existence of people who weren't in the room with us. Like I, I, I feel that I think that's something a feeling that I get when I play music sometimes. And maybe it's like something you could just call God or like the beyond. There's just this I think they're all the same. They're all sort of the same continuous concept at some level. It's just like I think there are there is like all the love that ever held us still exists. And in certain moments where you can kind of transcend the dullness of life and the like violence of the world we live in, then I think you can access that love. And um, music is one of the ways that I'm able to do that sometimes. Oh my God. Okay, (laughs) that was so beautiful. (laughs) Holy shit. (sighs) I wanted to ask you about your song Easier to Run. When you're talking about making this album and these songs are about trying to keep the faith, believing life can be new and even better, you also say in this effort, I find myself up against, and you have like a few things listed there, one of them being Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the another one is the awkward sag of younger passions, which is like, <laughs> what a great sentence. Um, it makes me think of easier to run that your song, which you said is about like looking back on heartbreak and hurts from your early twenties, how intense it was. Um, but now it's sort of those that hurt has sort of lost the edge, which you've kind of talked about feeling sad about, but also like. Could the awkward sag of younger passions also be a good thing? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes, it's like, it makes room for new, new, new subtleties of emotional experience (laughs) that you can't even get to when you're 22 because everything is like blaring at high volume all the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so hard because you know everything. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, man i i love i love the song it's a good song thank you um, and the and the um the topic as well so my next question is one word and it is cats and my answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a couple of those little guys living living in my midst. Their names are Bees and Dee Dee, and they were they were um, pandemic additions to my family. Mm. Yeah, they've been so entertaining. It's like unbelievable. I I always liked animals, you know, ever since my bug hunting days. And I grew up with pets. I grew up with cats and dogs. Love them both. I'm I'm team both. Um, <laughs> but like, I feel like my cats growing up, maybe I just was, I just didn't have the like depth of perception yet to see how entertaining they were. But my cats are so funny to me. I mean, the, I think they might be particularly funny cats. It's hard to say, but it might just be that I'm with them all the time. But um yeah, they really kept me sane during the pandemic because they obviously were oblivious to um, the political realities that was really nice to have around. Mm. And they just kept on living their little lives and trying to jump up onto things that they couldn't quite jump up onto and getting scared of dust mites and, you know, <laughs> killing mice and whatever else that cat hood entails and yeah oh they kill it, it mice a blessing. oh yeah one of my cats Dee Dee is like an absolute scourge on the like small fauna of my neighborhood I mean she she kills so many little creatures I'm actually looking out my window at a dead baby mole that she's left right outside the window mm. um is she the calico yeah Okay, and you nicknamed her Mrs. Garden. I I have I have like hundreds of Several, different yeah, hundreds, names yeah. that I call her. Yeah, yeah, that's great. My cat is not a killer. <laughs> she likes to like, and we we live in an old house like on a cliff, so there's like lots Whoa. of mice. Yeah, but we have definitely experienced her just like tossing a mouse in the air and running away. And then I have to catch the mouse. Yeah, Dee Dee does that too. Dee Dee does like to keep them alive sometimes for way too long. I mean, it's actually, it's really hard to square away with my love for them, how cruel they can be. Oh. You know, like, because yeah, she's definitely like torturing these little creatures sometimes. And she gets plenty of food straight from a can. So, you know, there's no survival in it. But I don't begrudge her of her instincts. I tried to keep her inside for a while, um, but she was like born outside. She was born on mm. the streets, and she just she couldn't she couldn't do it. And I I couldn't stand her meowing anymore, so I let her out. But it's actually on my neighborhood listserv. There's a lot of hate for outdoor cats, and I've had to like defend myself on there a few times, which I understand because I mean they kill like songbirds and stuff that like they kill like mm. vulnerable populations of animals but you know i don't know there's a lot of balancing to do because like we created them and now the shelters are full of them and what are we going to do like euthanize them all i've already adopted her like i love her i can't euthanize her and i can't prevent right. her happiness so i don't know like being being an ethical person is impossible and it's a it's a constant negotiation I wanted to hear more about the Ask Me Anything tour. Are you still talking about that? Is that something yeah. we can still hear about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's an open-ended tour. Yeah. <laughs> From what I understand, it's an evening of in-the-round songs where you offer advice about matters of the heart. 
with yourself and two other songwriters. Can you name them? I only have their last names. Yes. Um, one is Kate Rudy, who's also the person who sings harmonies on my, both of my solo albums. And the other one is Skylar Gudas, who is an incredible, both of them are incredible songwriters who live in the triangle. So how do these shows go? Like, how does the advice portion go? Is there any way that we can listen to the advice you give out? When are you um, dropping the podcast episodes? Mm, of that's a good idea. This tour. That's a really good idea. Um, I mean, we'd have to do a greatest hits because like definitely our advice is only spottily useful. But um, we the, the here's the format. We put out a wooden big wooden box at the front of the venue with little strips of paper and people write down their questions and put them in. And then we, and we do a round of songs and then we like read off the questions and they're anonymous. So people can, can ask embarrassing things. Although, you know, free, all our shows have been in North Carolina. So frequently that we have, you know, we know about 50% of the people in the audience. And a lot of times you kind of know who a question's coming from. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's really fun to not do a traditional, like, music performance format. It's really a relief, I think, for all of us, because we've all been playing shows for a long time. And I think for audiences, too. And it's a little more interactive than your typical show, because, I mean, we're reading the questions, but then we're kind of like, we're kind of bantering with the audience a little bit. Sometimes people shout shout things out in response to what we say or have a follow-up question or something like that. I think it's a good time. We decide we decided we're just going to kind of do it. We'll do a little well, a few shows here and there and then like take a break for a while, you know, so that we don't end up a- answering the same type of questions like too often and our advice doesn't start getting stale. But um I also really like the idea of just being like totally unqualified <laughs> like there's nothing about us that makes us particularly good at giving advice like it's not yeah. it's not um it's not super high quality but i guess we do we do spend a lot of time together like driving in cars and just musing mm-hmm. about things so it's maybe like a muscle that we that we exercise so that Great. maybe gives us like one little leg up on your average person Amazing. I hope to see one of these shows one day. It sounds fun. I hope so, too. Do you have time to do the lightning round? Yeah, definitely. Okay. What is a song that makes you cry every time? Um, I Dream a Highway by Gillian Welch. Oh, man, that is good. (laughs) What is the weirdest thing about North Carolina that the average person might not know? Well, this this is just comes to my mind at this moment. This is both weird and horrible, but um, people may have heard it. We have we're one vote shy in our state legislature from a Republican supermajority. Well, we were, and then like just this week, a Democratic lawmaker switched her party affiliation to a Republican. Bait and switch. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, like. I, I, if this starts becoming a trend, like it's gonna all bets are off for electoral politics. Like it's it's wild. It's really wild. Wow. Wow. All right. Next question. What color is your soul? Mm, I'm gonna say blue. What is your least favorite household chore? Mm, 
probably cleaning the litter box. Actually, I gotta change it. It's it's cleaning up a dead animal that Dee Dee has brought inside. That's oh, worse. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Gross. Who is your celebrity crush? Oh my god, I have so many celebrity crushes. Um jeez. Um Michael Fassbender. What is your preferred body of water? That's so tough. I I mean, I'm always I have got a sentimental love from for the Atlantic Ocean. What are you drinking before a show? Tequila. Mmm. What kind of tequila? Any kind? The George um, Clooney kind, I, right? I, I like the George Clooney tequila, yeah. And I like um, Herradura, um, yeah, Espolone, mm-hmm. any of them, you know, as long as it's not like, actually, even if it's bottom shelf. And then just on, <laughs> on ice with a lime, that'll do you right. It's an upper. It gets you, it gets you hyped for the show, yeah. I love that. We should have one one day. Yep. Write it down. Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Wow, that's tough. I've, I've seen some doozies. Well, one that is really close to my heart, even though it's not the most like uh, uh, dramatic beauty of all time, but I love Roan Mountain, which is like on the border between North Carolina and Tennessee when the rhododendron are blooming. Um, it was my mom's favorite place, so that's Aww. what brings it to mind. Oh, sounds great. Sounds beautiful. Libby Rodenbow, thank you so much for being on Basic Folk. Such a pleasure to get to know you, and congrats on the new album. It's it's great. Thank you Fantastic. so much for having me. It's good to finally meet you, and we'll we got to get that tequila together sometime. Yeah, let's get it on the books. Let's do it. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. All of our episodes can be found there, wherever you find podcasts, at our website, basicfolk.com. Or if you have the SiriusXM app, search for us in the app under Basic Folk. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.